0: Hello, I'm Catherine Jansen, editor of Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. I'm delighted to welcome you to our second episode of Speculum Spotlight, a collaboration with the Multicultural Middle Ages podcast. Each episode is designed to bring you behind the scenes of an article published in our upcoming issue, in this case, October 2023. In this episode, we spotlight Jewelry and People in the Byzantine Cemetery of Peripatamos, Epiros, by Yorgos Macris, Assistant Professor in the Department of Art History, Visual Art and Theory at the University of British Columbia. His work has appeared in Jesta and Dumberton Oaks Papers, among other venues. And he is currently at work on a monograph on the archaeology and material culture of monasticism in Byzantium. Here, in conversation with Reid O'Mara, Mellon Foundation Fellow and PhD candidate in the Department of Art History and Art at Case Western Reserve University, We learn how jewelry, studied in its gravesite location, can yield important insights into personal identity, status and wealth, trade networks, and concerns about the afterlife in a small community in northwestern Greece. Now, without further delay, let's listen to the animated conversation between Reed and Yorgos. See you on the other side.
1: Hello, my name is Reed Mera, and today I am joined by Yorgos Makris to discuss his amazing article in the October issue of Speculum, Jewelry and People in the Byzantine Cemetery of Peripatamos Iperos. Yorgos, it's really exciting to have you here.
2: Excited to be here, Reed. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. To kick off this episode, Yorgos, I would love to start by reading your abstract Jewelry, reflecting the tastes, needs, and practices of past users across all social strata, constitutes one of the most representative portable arts in the Middle Ages. Jewelry's typical lack of iconography or original context has often prevented scholars of Byzantine art from engaging with the medium's socio-historical value. By bringing together artworks from museum collections and objects found in the cemetery of Peripatmos in northwestern Greece, this study disentangles medieval jewelry from an inquiry into provenance or the development of fashion and instead situates specific jewels in a discussion about meaning on a social level in terms of ownership and human behavior in Byzantium and beyond. Wow, that is quite an abstract and It was such a pleasure to read as somebody who is you know i am a medievalist and i am an art historian but i'm certainly not a Byzantinist, and i don't have a specialty in medieval jewelry by any means and i found this article to be incredibly accessible the way you trace your journey to peripatamos examining the works and then diving into specific objects and graves it really is detail-oriented and shows the magic that happens when we wed archaeology and art history. To get us started, I really would love to hear how you approach this research topic and what brought you to Parapotamus.
2: First of all, thanks for the introduction. Now that you read it out loud, it sounds very ambitious, <laughs> <laughs> very optimistic. I will say that from the beginning I did have the goal of making this accessible to medieval scholars across disciplines and across fields. It was, yeah, it was uh, something of a goal to find a venue that would make this material slightly more accessible beyond Byzantines, because the, the, the problem with jewellery applies to medieval studies more broadly. It's not, it's not a Byzantinist issue. How did I arrive? That's an interesting story because basically it was out of luck. I, at the time that I started this research, I was working as a fellow at the Metropolitan Museum and the project there involved the study of some pieces of jewelry that the museum owns. And because I'm trained as an archaeologist, my inclination was to find objects that had been excavated and were similar in terms of style, in terms of technique, even dating, with some of the objects that the Met owned. Because I was trying to figure out how to talk about them in a more concrete and productive way, if you like. So some of those pieces, rather, let's say, maybe a few of them, were found at Parapotomos, some parallel examples. So I contacted the local department of antiquities, the euphoria of antiquities. One thing led to another, and, you know, I ended up actually working with that material specifically. And, and then the map became the Parallels rather than the other way around. <laughs> so the, the, the focus of the research became the site of Parapotamos, mainly because I saw the potential. Once once I was there, once I, I started handling the material and seeing the site and discussing it with the colleagues at the Euphoria, I realized that this is an extraordinary opportunity. And it's something that I say that it, it came to me out of luck, mainly because I that wasn't my intention from the beginning. And I wasn't, I'm not still a jewelry specialist. You know, it was just, yeah, basically the circumstances.
1: That's really fascinating. And... Although you describe your article as ambitious and yourself not as a jewelry specialist, it does not. I mean, the article is ambitious, but you'd very much deliver on it. And you do talk in great detail about these works of jewelry and their archeological context. And it shows a very precise and very careful reading of the site and also the works. And I think part of what makes this so successful is that you were actually able to examine the pieces of jewelry and you were able to look at photographs from the archeological dig that took place in the 1980s. And therefore we able to see these pieces of jewelry alongside the bodies of the deceased. So I would love to hear you talk about how having this experience of handling the jewelry, seeing it in its archeological context in its fine spot really can help you make conclusions about personal adornment in the Byzantine period.
2: Thank you. That's a that's a great question. Um, it was indeed an unprecedented experience for me as well. And I have to, again, pay tribute to the colleagues at the Euphoria of Antiquities because they not only had the, the actual objects, catalogued, described in detail, made accessible, displayed as well. Some of these objects are displayed in the local museum. Not, of course, the entire ensemble, but, you know, uh, selected pieces, and but the records of the excavation were really detailed as well. And that's fair to have, especially in, for an excavation that was run back in the 80s. And when I say records, I mean not only the textual records, but also the photographic records, as you say. And that was something that I wasn't expecting when I started this research, but I realized when I went there and I revisited the site, etc. So that really changed my perspective and I managed to ask the questions that I asked, mainly because I had access to all of this sort of material. And I realized, oh, th- this is really a great opportunity to actually make this slightly more archaeological, but at the same time talk about things that concern art historians as well. So it was it was a fine balance because, you know, the context plays a role there. But the the handling of the objects and, and you know, the, the photographs, et cetera, was really something that changed my perspective in a way and the, the approach that I would follow afterwards. One thing that I will say, and this is the the anecdote of the, of the experience, was that I, I, I had a very different perspective in terms of scale before going there. Because we, we see everything, you know, zoomed in and in magnitude, and once you go there, you realize how small these objects are and how precious they are, even when we are talking about fragmented, deteriorated objects like a copper ring. They are so delicate, and you realize the the, the craftsmanship and the effort that has been put on each one of them, that you say, oh, yeah, of course, I want to talk about the ring as well because you know some of these pieces I had seen only in photos, and I was saying, okay, this is really out of my league. It's, ve- it's very sort of small. I can't deal with it. And once you, and, you know, I can't see the photo very well. Once you go there, you realize, oh yeah, each modest object actually deserves the attention that you, that you can give it. So it was, yeah, it it was really sort of an approach changing experience.
1: I can really imagine that. I mean, You discuss in the article that one of the struggles with working on items like this is that they don't really have iconography and they can seem very simple, but then just having the experience of seeing them in person and realizing, wow, this is a precious object with a lot of craftsmanship that somebody actually wore and had physically on their body. And in fact, physically on their body in the grave." it really speaks to the importance of these objects. And you touch on that it is really difficult to work with these materials, not only because of photographic records maybe being difficult to see and also understand scale, but also because jewelry itself has been a little discounted in art history and even archaeology. And I'll actually read a quote here. You're uh, referencing the work of Alicia Walker, and you say that there really has been a scholarly reluctance to engage with the social historical value of jewelry. I would love to hear about how that reluctance is changing, but also maybe where this reluctance even
2: comes from. Uh, Thanks. Um, I think that I also had this reluctance when I started the project. As we said before, the lack of iconography, the fact that we think of these objects as mainly for aesthetic purposes and we have no other meaning. All these issues were lingering in my mind. And I think that that sort of reluctance has led also to a lack of a robust, let's say, corpus of scholarship on jewelry on both, on all sides of the the medieval world. So it it is hard to get past that stage, not only mentally, but also practically speaking as a researcher. You know, they have been assigned to the minor arts, as Alicia Walker explains very well in that important article of hers. And... All, all these issues have led to a situation where you might have an overview of Byzantine art and you might, or, or a catalogue, and you might have a, few, a handful of pieces of jewellery, and that's it. And then you can talk about trade, perhaps, and techniques that travel bet- between cultures, which are important issues, but that's how far you go. The other problem, I think, and I realise it because I accessed archaeological material, is the fact that you tend to lack archaeological context, that actual site-specific context that would give you the momentum to work with uh, with issues beyond trade or fashion or iconography and think about the actual users because usually you don't have them. So I understand that reluctance and that tendency not to deal with these issues because you rarely have the context. And you, you need that a little bit, that archaeological training to, to understand that context, which helped me at least. So, yeah, there, there, there has been a problematic discourse, but lately these things have changed. And let's say in the past, let's say, 10 years or so, we have important articles that talk about also more the, sensu- the, the sensory aspect of the, of the jewellery in Islamic, Byzantine, and also Western medieval contexts, you also have more jewelry featuring in textbooks as well, sort of grand and you know highlight pieces, to, uh, for my you know <laughs> taste. But still, there has been a lot of progress, and I and I in a sense I wanted to contribute. I wanted to add one more stone to that move.
1: I think that it works really well having objects that have a specific fine spot, and you're able to make a lot more conclusions than about how they might have been understood by the wearers. And one of the things that initially draws me into this article is you talking about how these pieces can bring a certain aesthetic pleasure, not only to the wearer, but to the viewer. But also that beyond that, they signify a person's identity, whether we're talking about their gender or social status, but also them belonging to a particular cultural group. And given that these are portable objects, they moved around a lot. So having them in the grave in context can be really helpful for thinking how they might have had those functions something that you highlight is that you want to look at portable objects on their own terms. And you've just mentioned how they do relate to different commercial networks. I think that this would be something really great to talk about, because you do deal with a lot of issues of center and periphery in
2: your article. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it was indeed, uh, again, thinking of the the process, because um, in in this article, there was a lot of thinking in my mind about the process and the, the various approaches that I can follow with this material. Yeah, trade, it's, it's, it's an important issue when we're talking about portable objects. And in this particular instance, because we are talking about a site that is remote, yet at the same time, at the edge of an empire, meaning very close to other cultural groups, the jewelry speak about that. They, they, they speak about that position, that geographic position. And in a sense, they speak about the community. And when we think about it, you know, a small, real, remote, rural site in northwestern Greece, we, we, we tend to think of a place that is sort of uh, more isolated. But in this particular instance, you realize that they are using pieces that other people are using in, in the north and central Europe. You have pieces that are expensive as well. And it means possibly that some of these pieces were perhaps manufactured locally, but definitely the resources, the raw material, and indeed some of the actual pieces, the more perhaps elaborate ones, might be coming from somewhere else. Whether that's somewhere else, and I try to deal with it to a degree, whether that's somewhere else is a metropolis or another big city, that's unknown. But definitely there is... More than one centers that are involved in this sort of movement of the objects, and they certainly travel beyond the the frontiers that that's for sure both the artists and the styles in a sense so it's you know the, there was a lot of discussion about one specific piece within the article about the more international style of some jewelry pieces in the past and in a way, the last thing that I want to say about this is that it was a difficult issue to tackle, mainly because it had been already sort of established by scholars before, that these objects travel. And we can think of potential ways that they went. But in, in this instance, I try to deal with objects in an archaeological context. So all my parallels, as you can see, or most of them, are coming also from archaeological context. So I wanted to relate specific sites instead of, oh, here's a a museum piece that might be from, let's say, the Kievan Rus, might might not be, so let's connect to that. I wanted to have sort of a network of locations, an imagined one, instead of just jewelry pieces that have been assigned an ethnic or a cultural category within a, a curatorial context.
1: I think that this is something that is really important because a lot of these pieces assigning them a geographic or cultural or religious context is often based on just the way the object looks and presumed networks and not necessarily on an archaeological fine spot and i think this is actually a really great moment to talk about what the jewelry actually looks like because i mean if if there isn't already a reason to read the article because it's fascinating, for the images, I mean, you show not only the pieces of jewelry in nice detail, also the archaeological sites, but even you have an image of one of the grave sites, and it shows one of the pieces of jewelry you know, on the arm of its wear, and that image is incredibly impactful, so what, what does the jewelry look like? Let's talk about that. The craftsmanship.
2: <laughs> I, I have to agree about the images because they have had an impact a couple of times when I present them to an audience at conferences. Yeah, it, I, I wanted to have the images of the graves in order to, under, to actually, because the image can tell you much more than I can. So we can start with the grand piece of the article, and it was really the starting point. It was the 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 piece that the Med had. It's a type of jewelry that many museums have, and I wanted to find that archaeological parallel, which eventually became the focus of the article. But that was the that was the trigger. So we have these basket earrings, as they are called which are very well known to jewellery specialists. There are not so many jewellery specialists, but to those there are, it's one of the top five, let's say, pieces that you know in terms of type. They have that globular sort of uh, core, and they are decorated with granules, uh, granule powder, as it's called. They also have round wire around these granules. And there is at the very so they look like a basket, really, because they they have a hollow body, but it is a circular, sort of globular core, and they have a suspension loop that connects the connects the piece to the ear. There are also bracelets that I touch upon in the article. These consist of two or three cylindrical bands or rectangular bands, and these are tied with hinges. And they are also engraved, and those. It's interesting again seeing the objects. Those engravings have that low relief, so they are sort of projecting from the from the bracelet. They have, they have very interesting texture as well when you actually handle them. And once again, I was thinking, oh yeah, yet another copper alloy bracelet. But when I get there and I see them, I said, of course, these are worth discussing and putting them in because they they complete the ensemble. They complete the The appearance of the disease and and then you have e- each of these types of jewelry has a story a story that you can trace it back in time or various other sort of parallels. I will say that one other piece that was interesting and one can see it even when reading the article where was the 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 earring that has these open-work beads. You have, I have a gold earring and a couple of more that are made of bronze. I have that similar style with the beads. And the beads are threaded into wire, and they are also held with a very fine, thin wire. These are very delicate pieces. Even the the, the copper pieces are very interesting. What was striking was the fact that the copper pieces were usually larger than the uh, the, the gold or the silver, Uh, which one can... It's tempting to make a case that, oh, yeah, of course, they were made of copper, but they still look very spectacular, whereas the gold, you know, you have that expensive material, so you can make it a bit smaller, and perhaps you don't have so much of gold there. We do know that some of these pieces were gilded, so that that can also play a role with the more expensive metals. But yeah, I would say that these were the main things that I dealt with. Oh, and one more thing were the rings. And the rings had usually a very thin, flat, you know, hoop. And they were usually crowned with a very circular bezel. Sometimes the the bezel was missing, sometimes not. Usually because of the context and time, usually the precious stones were missing from the rings it's impressive how your mind and your mindset changes once you actually see the objects. I was only sure that I would be impressed by the uh, basket earrings, but then eventually I was impressed by everything because it was they were so uh, interesting. And uh, the last thing that I want to say about this is that, in a sense, even when the excavation report was not really clear on the gender of the diseased, even in graves that I don't deal with in the article, but I examined when I got there by talking to the colleagues. And then, because they have also the experience of dealing with a lot of cemeteries like that, and also seeing the actual objects and the scale, you realize, oh yeah, of course we're talking about a woman when you see also some objects that were used by men because you realize the the different sizes of the jewelry depending on the gender.
1: Thinking through these practicalities really shows how detail-oriented you need to be when you're working with these objects because they are on the body. They are small. Something like the size determines who likely the wearer was. I wish people could see your hand gestures because I'm getting a sense of the texture of these bracelets and the way that these bands and pieces of metal have been formed into these beautiful shapes. You do discuss the craftspeople who made these. And I'm wondering if you could tell us anything about, do we know anything about the status of these craftspeople? Obviously, these are very specialized skills <laughs> and they're working with all sorts of metals and what's available to them.
2: Yeah. One more thing that you said, as you were commenting on my response, I, I we are talking about indeed pieces of metal, meaning that most of these objects are made of several pieces of metal joined together. It's not as if you're talking about one piece that is being sort of transformed into a piece of jewelry, which is important to remember. And that's why you, you pay tribute to that process by describing them in detail. So it was, I was thinking, okay, this is going to be the only chance that these objects might actually be described in, in, in detail. So you, you have to go all the way. So I'm closing that parenthesis and going back to the craftsman. In a sense, so we have some textual records about the techniques that these people were using. We do know that they were usually located in cities, these people, they were based in cities. They they are important, they, because they do come up in the sources every now and then as individuals and as let's say, essential members of the market, essential members of the working class, if there is anyway, in quotation marks. And we do know that they had multiple workshops in big cities, the goldsmith, the people who were working with the metal, the people who were, you know, transferring the metal from uh, the mountains or wherever that raw material was found. So there are in a sense, various categories of people who are involved in these processes. And for some of them, the makers, we do have more information, but there are other essential members in the process who are more silent in the sources, unfortunately, but we do know that they existed. And you are talking, of course, about some metropolitan centers, for example, Constantinople, where we know that the emperor had access to those people, they commissioned things. But we do have evidence in other sort of archaeological contexts where you, we know that these people were present in almost every city and even in places where you wouldn't expect them to be. Because apart from jewellery, as we know, metal objects like pieces of armory, they were used widely. So uh, these people were certainly essential And they are reference. We don't have a source like the 11th century Theophilus book, which deals with specifically the craftspeople and the technique of making. But even through him, and we know through other sources as well, like legal documents, we do know that these people were valued. And they were certainly needed at every side that used metal either in the form of jewelry or other objects. So it's another line of inquiry that I want to follow a bit more in the future, I have to say. Again, from a more archaeological perspective, because it's something that has triggered me as I went along. That, that sort of, that individual, who are they and where are they based? What is the daily routine? Where do they live? Do they have the workshops? And because they're, I've done a little bit of research and we do know that Some of these people had their workshops on the ground floor and they might live on the top floor of the house. They were dealing with fire quite a lot, obviously. And because of that, the the houses were prone to destruction easier than other places within the city. And we do know that in some fortified places, usually their workshops are built very close to the walls, so at the edge of the fortress, but we do have them there as well. So they are certainly... I think, important members of society and definitely, um, let's say, noted as distinct members of society. They are not like everybody else. They have a very specific craft, and that craft is valued for the obvious reasons.
1: That's just so really wonderful here to think about how... People who are working with these metals, making jewelry and maybe other items as well, but how they are essential to these societies in the Middle Ages. And I would say, you know, jewelry has a long life. People still wear jewelry, (laughs) you know, and it's really great to see this sense of dignity restored to these craftspeople and the objects that they have made and that still survive. And in fact, I am reminded of a quote that has stuck with me from your article, and I think it's really impactful, is thinking about how these objects become memorials for the ephemeral body that has decayed. And so I want to turn us to a conversation about death and death rituals in Byzantium and why it is that these jewelry pieces were buried because they're no longer among the living, they must be important for the deceased and saying something about their status beyond the grave. So I would love for you to, to expand on on that context specifically.
2: Yeah, it's it, it was obviously an important issue because of the context that relationship between the dead body and Juliet. Because we are talking about the dead body, and it was something that I had to again come to terms with because I was at the beginning I was thinking about the user in a more regular way as a, as a living person, but gradually it is, no, you, you're actually having that context that you have to really take it into account at every at every aspect of this, of this work. There are certainly personal objects, we do know that, and there are objects that are selected to be placed in the grave. So in a sense, you're talking about not only the dead, but you're also talking about the choice of the living and the affordance of the living. They do talk about status. They also talk about some kind of social variation with the community because in one, in one instance, you might have six pieces of jewelry in one grave. In another instance, you might have only one. So even within a small rural settlement, and by looking only at the deceased and not their houses or their streets or the market, you still realize how that community functioned socially even when we think of it as a sort of very homogeneous community, it was not, socially speaking, and taste-wise, and status-wise. In a sense, the the other thing that I will say is that you you tend to realize in a more concrete way the appearance of these people by by looking at at the grave photographs, and of course, if, if you're lucky or if you have the opportunity to, to excavate the grave, you realize how the actual person actually wore those pieces. And then you can you know, talk about that relationship between representations of, this, of these individuals or elite individuals, and then what, how they actually look in the grave, how they are placed. When the bracelet is very close to the palm or it's further high up on the arm, when the, when the pieces of ear, the, the earrings are placed next to the skull rather than on top of the earring, sometimes you have multiple pairs of earrings close to the disease. I had one grave, I think, that I dealt with where you had two pairs. So the one pair was placed on the side, the other pair was placed on the ear, on the ears. So it was they, they do amplify the body, in a sense, and, and they amplify even your impression of this dead body. These pieces, because you are trying to trace as you go through this exercise, you're trying to trace the oh where they are, have they been misplaced are we Are we talking about the bones of the diseased, and then some pieces of metal sort of uh, combined together with the pile of bones, or you see a very well defined and well arranged skeleton in the grave along with the the markers of metal. So these are all questions that you have to ask when you're dealing with uh, this context, the funerary context. We do know also that in many instances, even in remote places and in let's say modest places, especially women, were adorned with pieces of jewelry, with clothing. Shrouding was also another part of the ritual. And it was all visible during the funeral, which is important to remember that these places also had some rituals with processions moving from the church to the cemetery. And you could still see, at least in moments, the deceased and their appearance. So in a sense, all these adornments played a role and they they reminded you of that identity. Just even... Just before the moment of the burial, even just before they put in the ground the disease, and we we have to remember that in a sense, the dead body is an extension of that living persona, and that and I think that in a sense they pay tribute to that living person- and this is more hypothetical but because it's we don't have that interpretation of the funeral on behalf of the Byzantines. But we, how I understand is that they are paying tribute to that living person, but at the same time, they want to place them ready for the next journey as they should be, in a sense. And in some instances, you do have the access to the resources and you have the economic ability to do this. And it's obvious that some, some of these extended families could afford to leave one gold piece or a silver piece or both with the disease. In some other instances, less so. But there is definitely at least half, I mean, at Parapotomos, you had 60% of the graves with jewellery. At least half of the population cared about that appearance and the decoration of the dead body.
1: Thinking through all of these tiers of jewellery, the way it amplifies the body, and the rituals that are going on around the deceased it makes you realize the different times you need to think about. You have to think about the person's life and they were living and then the decisions maybe they made, the decisions that then the people that they leave behind think about, but also what that time beyond the grave is thought of as in the Middle Ages. And specifically here, we're talking about medieval Christians. Death is not the end. (laughs) There's something beyond And so for them, being prepared and having this jewelry around them, it's a part of that. It's a part of that sense of eschatological time. And it's really fascinating to think about how they're going into the grave with multiple sets of earrings. And this is a decision that has been made by the living for the deceased. And also something that you highlight that this just reminded me of is the way that these graves show us that wealthy people are not just being buried in churches. They're also being put in cemeteries. And so are other classes and tiers of society. This is a space that is shared. And as we're all equal in death, Jewelry perhaps around you says something else about your status in the grave. (laughs) And so just thinking about how that performance of identity continues on, after death is really fascinating and the way that these jewelry pieces connect the deceased to the living still and then jewelry is something that is a relationship between people.
2: Yeah absolutely absolutely I agree you said it very nicely and I think that it's up to us to start tackling those issues and dealing with these questions when we when we can.
1: Exactly and here is an example where having a specific gravesite and having all of this archaeological information and wedding it to an art historical study is really useful and is able to tell us a lot about death culture in Byzantium and in this small community in Northwestern Greece, but also about jewelry and the people who made it. And so I think this is a really great point to end our conversation on. And I just want to thank you so much for, spending this afternoon with me and talking about your article that is coming out this month in Speculum. And for those who want to see images of these beautiful pieces of jewelry, we'll include a link in our podcast notes, but we'll also encourage you to turn to the actual article where you can read more on this fascinating topic and actually see the images.
2: Thank you, Reed, so much for the conversation. I have to say I'm thankful also uh, for the podcast because in a way i wanted this to travel as much as possible it's a remote site it's a, it's a very small village even today and i'm glad that it's being given a very proper place in history so to speak through this through this effort and i think that we we need at the very end to to stress the value of dealing with tools from different disciplines in our exercises from art history to archaeology to history these are all important disciplines when you deal with objects that are hard to read, such as pieces of jewellery. I think that Spectrum was the ideal venue to do that because, in a way, the journal sets a model of scholarship. So, in to a degree, I, I wanted that contribution to that model by dealing with the dialogue of these disciplines, in a way. Thanks so much.
1: Oh thank you and you know, what a great note to end on. Interdisciplinary with the future. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks. Many thanks to Yorgos and Reed for that terrific conversation. Before signing off, I'd like to thank the MMA series producers, William Beattie, Jonathan Correa, Reed Omara, and Logan Quigley. I'd also like to acknowledge the members of the Speculum Editorial Board, particularly Mohamed Balan, along with the Speculum staff, Taylor McCall, Carol Anderson, and Jane Mashu. We are also grateful to the Medieval Academy of America for its sponsorship of the podcast. Music for the MMA is by Anna O'Connell. I'm Catherine Jansen, editor of Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. Speculum is the journal of the Medieval Academy of America and is published by the University of Chicago Press. One of the perks of joining the Medieval Academy of America is receiving both the print and digital editions of the journal. You can find us online at journals.uchicago.edu slash TOC slash SPC slash current. Goodbye for now. See you next time.